0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, church. Great to be with you again as we gather in a different kind of way. And I pray that your Christmas and your new year have been excellent, that you're safe, that you're cared for, and uh, that you're continuing to watch God work by his spirit in your life. Uh, I would like to give you a report on how my Christmas was and all of that, but I'll give you, uh, I'll be honest with you today, we're actually recording this teaching on December 23rd in order to allow for a little Christmas break for our tech team. And so I really don't know how Christmas has gone. And I partly wanted to tell you this because this last year has been so crazy that just in case I don't acknowledge the breaking out of world war three, uh, that happened in the last week, it's because I'm not privy to it yet because it's only December 23rd in my world. I mean, that's the kind of year that 2020 was. It just seemed that every week there was some new development, some massive tragedy that unfolded and of course it would be an understatement to say that 2020 was a hard year the trials in 2020 were severe and not only severe you know globally and you know universally amongst humanity but uniquely and individually uh, to lose a loved one to lose a job or career, to have to relocate, to be uh, hungry or impoverished when you weren't expecting it, to have these things thrust upon your life, these are unique challenges to you. Just because many others are facing a similar fate during this last year doesn't mean that the pain isn't real for you as an individual. And as we embark on this new year, I want to just pause for a moment and celebrate uh, two things. Number one, God's faithfulness to us in the previous year. You know, humanity has passed through very dark times historically in many pockets and many moments and on every continent throughout human existence. And this last year, we've gotten a taste of that darkness, but the Lord has been faithful to his people. He's spoken to us, he's encouraged us, he's providing for us, God has been faithful. And the second thing that I want to celebrate is you, the faith of God's people. You know, for me, 2020 was one of the more difficult years of my pastoral career. But you, with your faith and your prayers and your generosity uh, made the year easier than it could have been. It could have been much harder and much more severe. And I don't have a Pollyannish view about 2021. I know that there will be difficulties and hardships across the board for all of us, but I am thankful to God for you and your support in this previous year. And if there's anything that we learn in 2020, it's this, that we can expect the unexpected. James said in James chapter four, verse 14, that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. And I think we've all experienced that this last year. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But even though we don't know what tomorrow will bring, we can know with total certainty what the priority of life should be at all times across the board. We cannot see into the future, but we can be certain about the most important thing in life. And that's what I want to talk to you about today on this first Sunday of 2021. And we're going to talk about it from our study in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, if you would turn there in your Bibles. Mark chapter 12 in verse 28. Now as a reminder, we're in right now the final week of Jesus's life. Mark gives us much detail about this last week in the life of Christ. Uh, He's going to die on the cross at the end of this week. But right now he's in the middle of this week and he is being confronted by a barrage of religious leaders and their questions. The Pharisees challenged him, the Herodians challenged him, the Sadducees challenged him, and Jesus answered all of them Expertly, And we've already looked at each one of those attacks in previous weeks and months. And I'd encourage you to go back and look at, if you missed those teachings, what Jesus said earlier in Mark chapter 12. But after each one of those groups that I just mentioned were rebuffed by Jesus and his wisdom, it says in verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? The scribe asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, scribes in the Bible and in the New Testament era were students of the Old Testament scripture. Uh, They were like lawyers who inspected the law of God's word. So this man was an expert in the scripture and as he listened to Jesus adeptly handle his theological challengers, look at what Luke said in verse 28. He saw that Jesus answered them well. He was impressed with what he saw. And Jesus' wise answers pushed this man to ask Jesus the question, which commandment is the most important of all. Now, before reading Jesus's answer, uh, we should probably ask if this scribe was sincere in his question. After all, the Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees, they'd all uh, been less than sincere. In their questioning, they were trying to trap Jesus with their words. But here, this man likely is coming to Jesus with some sincerity in his heart. Uh, Mark portrays him as an honest inquirer. Uh, He thought Jesus answered well, Mark says, in verse 28. After Jesus answered, he agreed with Jesus, in verse 32. And Jesus considered, in verse 34, his answer a wise answer. And at the end of our passage, Jesus is going to tell this scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So it seems that God is at work in this scribe's heart. Now, this is important because what the scribe had witnessed was a debate between Jesus and his challengers. Now, we don't know with certainty if the challengers were moved at all by the answers of Jesus. But knowing humanity like we do, whenever we see a debate, between two experts. Generally, expert one is unmoved by expert two, and expert two is unmoved by expert one. It's likely that we know Jesus wasn't going to be moved, but it's likely that the Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees who tried to trap Jesus remained unmoved. But there's a third group, the audience. And the scribe was part of that audience. He had been watching this interaction between Jesus and these challengers. And what he heard from Jesus's mouth moved him to inquire further about Jesus. I mention this because perhaps it can inform some of our interactions. As we're interacting with people online or in person about the claims of Christianity or about our testimony or about our faith, we would do well to remember that it's not only the person we're speaking to, but also the people who will be privy to that conversation that we are also uh, trying to move and speak to. You never know who's listening. You never know who might be moved by the way that you respond. Now, the question that the scribe asked was not actually a new question. Uh, The adherents of Judaism had been, trying to boil down the big, robust, complex law of God, the Old Testament scripture into smaller chunks for many, many years. Uh, They'd concluded that there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. 248 of those commands were positive, you know, do this or do that. And 365 of the commands were negative. Don't do this and don't Do that. And with so many commands, many of them attempted to boil these commands down into categories or chunks, maybe 10 principles or 20 principles or five principles. But Jesus is going to boil it down to one with an offshoot secondary command. So that's what this man wants to know though. What is the most important? Can you, Jesus, declare to us which commandment is the superior commandment? And so Jesus is now going to give his answer. Let's read it in verse 29 and 30. It says, Jesus answered, the most important is, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind And with all your strength. Now we'll pause there before looking at the offshoot or secondary command to love our neighbor as ourselves. But I want you to notice first how Jesus told the man that there was, verse 29, a most important commandment. There is one commandment, according to Jesus, that is above all the rest. If someone does not obey the first commandment, they cannot obey the other commandments. This commandment to love God is upstream. Everything else is downstream from our love for God. And this all-important command, like I've been saying, it starts with God. This is why Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he said there in verse 29, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's the scribe asking Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus begins by quoting Deuteronomy 6. Here's, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's not really a commandment. It's a statement about who God is. Now, the cross was going to open up justification by faith to every tribe and nation and tongue. But this was a statement that declared God's desire to be in a covenant with the people of Israel. And it affirmed the nature, the oneness, the unity of God. Now, why does Jesus start here? Well, partly because whatever the greatest commandment is, and we already read it there, it's loving God, you know, spoiler alert. Uh, But that loving God, you cannot engage in it without recognizing first that there is a true and living and unified God. God, in other words, is required in order to do the greatest moral good that a human being can ever do. Now, this is important in our day, especially. You know, over the centuries, the Western world has in many ways imitated the Christian church has taken many of our values and morals and philosophies and principles that have been an offshoot of our consideration of scripture and begun to apply them to the overall uh, community you know so you'll see People who don't believe in God, trying to love people, care for people, take care of others in their community. The Christians were the ones who often set the trend of caring for the sick or studying the natural universe, scientific discovery, helping the poor or feeding the hungry. But the natural man can do uh, these things as well. But the believer can do something even more, even beyond Uh, all of those things. The believer can love God. And this is the highest moral good. By loving God first, our love for humanity is actually improved. You see, without a love for God, our love for humanity will eventually and definitely skew in awkward and unwise directions, all in the name of loving people. But the love of God is what keeps us true. It all begins with God. So Jesus said that the greatest commandment begins with the God of Scripture and that we should, look at verse 30, love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Now, I'm willing to bet that many of you that are sitting there or walking or running or driving and listening to or watching this teaching, you're familiar with this passage. You've heard it perhaps time and time again. You know, we gotta love God, we've got to love our neighbor. This is the sum of the law. But I want you to pause today and think about it. This is a commandment. The scribe asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love God. The greatest commandment God imposes on us is to love him with everything we have and everything we are. We are commanded to love him. Now, if anyone else had laid down this mandate, it would be awkward. You know, a husband cannot command a wife to love him. A parent can't command a child to love them. And if you want to lose all of your friends, bug them, bother them, and tell them that they need to love you. I mean, it's just a way to put people off. It's an awkward commandment to give. But the greatest commandment that God gives is to love him. But because we're talking about God, this isn't narcissism, but it's love that drives him to command us to love him in return. You see, God is worthy of our love. He's the great creator, the one who designed and made us so that we could connect to him. We're a shell of ourselves without him. He's the initiator of our salvation. And he laid down his life in order to save us, so he's worthy of our love. But loving God isn't just about his worthiness, but our holiness. You see, a love for God will keep you out of all kinds of trouble. When the love of God is the filter that you use for every decision in life, you become more sanctified, more holy. and. When love for God helps you decide who to date or what to consume or how to work, your life becomes holier. And from holiness springs health. Your life becomes healthier. You see, the best version of life is the life that is submitted to God. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should love God as a thin Veil for self-love. A lot of people will do this, you know, come to church, they're not there to worship God in any way, but they're there to get something uh, from God uh, for that day. Uh, I'm not suggesting that kind of attitude about God. I'm suggesting that God knows that if we love him more than anyone or anything or even ourselves, we will end up in a healthy spot. So his command to love him flows from his love for us. He wants the best for us, and the best for us comes when we love him. I'll hold out my own children as an example of this principle. I want my kids to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And at this point in their lives, they do. They love the Lord. But I know that a firm love for God will protect them from Many terrible decisions, paths, people, and great pain in life. I know that loving God above everyone and everything else will get them through some of the greatest pains and tragedies of life. The love of God is what I want to have be supreme in their hearts. You know, when Christina and I were dating, this was my singular biggest question and hers as well. We wanted to know, does this person love Jesus more than anything else? Do they love Jesus more than they will ever love me? It's been a love for Christ that's enabled us to serve and love each other well over the years. You see, love for God must come first above all loves. If he isn't first, then life is inevitably ordered incorrectly. If he isn't first, the foundation is off and the house of your life will eventually crumble. Now, the first commandment here, to love God, it helps us understand the greatest of all sins. And I know that we say that all sin is the same. And yes, if we're talking about falling short of the glory of God, all sin is the same. The same, even one small sin or one massive sin causes us to fall short of God's glorious perfection. But one sin exists that breeds thousands of other sins and it's a lack of love for God. The greatest commandment is to love him, so it is deadly not to love him. Now, at the risk of using a bad illustration for this, Do you remember when the rebellion stole the plans for the first Death Star? It had a fatal flaw built into its core. With one direct hit from Luke Skywalker's X-wing, a chain reaction was set off that destroyed that Death Star from within. Well, bear with me now because I'm about to compare you to that Death Star but the enemy is trying to blast away at your love for God. Without a fear of the Lord, we will commit all kinds of egregious sins, but the love of God preserves us from a chain reaction of errors that destroys us from within. Now up to this point, we haven't really defined love in our teaching. We've just been talking about love, saying the word love, And it's funny, a lot of people think they know what love is and what love feels like. You know, our society is one that's obsessed with love, but I think a lot of times they're misled about what love is. You know, love's not only a feeling. Love does not permit anything to happen. Love is not sex. Love does not justify disobedience to God. These things aren't love in the slightest. Love is the dedication and commitment with everything you are to God. It's a decision. It's a practice. It's a walk. It's a constant war to make sure that your affections are toward him. Now, are the emotions involved? Absolutely. You know, when the gospel saturates your heart, you'll become overwhelmed with emotion over what Christ has done for you. Love will issue forth from your heart, but it must become a constant direction and impulse and drive within you. Everything you are should point in the direction of loving God. Now, Jesus illustrated this by telling us that we must love God with, he said in verse 30, all our hearts, souls, mind, and strength. Everything we are, our wills, our emotions, our intellects, and our bodies, they can spend themselves, we can spend them on loving God. You know, what's in your heart? What's your main motivation for life? Loving God can be that main motivation. What's in your soul? Where do you go for emotional fulfillment? Loving God can satisfy your soul. How do you use your mind? What do you study? What do you read? What do you memorize? What do you watch? Love God by studying him in his word. How do you use your energy? What makes you tired in life? How do you get fatigued? Your work and your service to others can be done with the aim of loving God. Now, I want to point out to you guys that all this helps us understand that Christianity is not just a bunch of rules. Have you ever heard somebody say that, you know, oh, that I tried Christianity, it's just a bunch of rules. Now, some people arrive at this conclusion, but, my opinion is that they come to this conclusion because they never understood the gospel. They come to this conclusion because they never understood the gospel. You see, when you get the gospel, you understand what God has done for you. And according to Titus 2, 11 to 14, understanding what God has done for you produces in you a desire to be zealous for good works. With his love unleashed upon your soul, You cannot help but respond in love to him. You see, all of the Christian life is a response to the love of God. It says in 1 John 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Why do you think all the epistles or many of the epistles are designed the way they are? Doctrine, teaching, instruction about what God has done on the front end and then what we need to do in response to what God has done on the back end. So many Christians just wanna know, tell me what to do, tell me how to live, but the thing is, you won't have the motivation for that if you don't continually meditate on what God has done. Now, before looking at the offshoot to love our neighbor, I want you to consider how a love of God can be the driving force for your whole life. You know, this year, 2021, I pray that you would be able to have a love for God as the driving force of everything that you do. You know, in past centuries in the church, there have been different seasons where, or were different seasons where uh, Christians thought that the way to really love God was to live a hermitic life, to become a monk, to go to a monastery, and uh, so many did, but unfortunately it really backfired at many pockets of the church's history as well because many other Christians admired the monks for what they did but didn't want to do that themselves, so they donated vast amounts of land and buildings and property and money to the monks. And many of the monks ended up living a a fairly easy life. So it all kind of backfired on them. But that belief, you know, that if I really want to love God, I've got to pull away from everything in my daily experience. It's often an easy lie for a Christian to believe. Now, certainly when, the love of God invades your heart, things can and will change. You know, God might even ask you to break the mold of your life and do something radical or extremely different. Generally, though, this is not the way that God works. Instead, God infiltrates your everyday life and experience. Through loving God, every relationship and endeavor comes alive. Soon, your career becomes a way for you to love God. Every interaction with co-workers is an outlet for your devotion to him. Marriage yields to his leadership. Families become healthy. Friendships gain depth. Churches become fruitful. The love of God invades everything. It just impacts every interaction and decision of life. I think I've told you guys this before. I've written about it before, just kind of how I handle my phone. I think it's I think having a phone is a responsibility. And so, one of the things that I do to try to keep myself from being distracted by it, and to kind of have mastery over that tool rather than that, and then that tool having mastery over me, is just one of the things I do amongst many. Is I generally keep my phone in grayscale mode, so everything is black and white, you know, various tones of gray. There's no color on the screen. And, and I think that it cuts down on the distraction a little bit. It's a little less eye candy when I look at it because it's just dull. i have to look for what I'm actually trying to see or do or accomplish in that uh, moment, but I can toggle the phone back into full color mode uh, when needed. And the other day I was listening to some music on my phone and uh, I was thumbing through uh, different albums and I came to one of my favorite albums that and I wanted to listen to it for a little bit. My phone happened to be in full color mode at that moment. And when I saw the album cover, I recognized it because I'd seen it hundreds of times in grayscale mode, but I did not know that it had so much vibrant color inside of the album cover. It was just beautiful. The designer had done an incredible job. I'd only ever seen it though in grayscale, but in full color mode, it came alive. And this is what loving God can do to life. Everything is now in color when the love for God is first in your life. A commute becomes a chance to listen to teaching about his Word, so that you can love him with your mind. A walk becomes a chance to pray and love him with your soul. A work shift becomes a chance to demonstrate the work ethic of Christ and love God with your strength. A friendship becomes a way to see God's image in another person. All of it comes alive because of a love for God. Now all of this leads us up to the second or the attached commandment in verse 31. So let's read it together. Jesus said the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, now it might shock you to, to know that when Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he's actually quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus. So he's gotten these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You know, so much for the Old Testament being a, violent and dangerous book with terrible morals. No, the the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi is actually refreshing and good and God-centered rather than man-centered. But Jesus here used the Leviticus passage to help us see where a love for God will lead. A love for God will inevitably lead to a love of neighbor. I mention this because there's a myth that many Christians sometimes believe that we can love God but dislike people that we can love God but despise people or hate people treat them poorly but this is not true the love of God will lead to a love for the people that are made in God's image and loving others is a way for us to love God God loves it when we love others and so we've got to extend ourselves to other people this is how John said it in first John chapter four, verse 21. He said, this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. In other words, you can't love the invisible God without loving visible people. A person who refuses to love others clearly hasn't interacted with God. One of my favorite uh, theologians or pastors from The 20th century said it this way, John Stott, he said, a Christianity which would use the vertical preoccupation as a means to escape from its responsibility for and in the common life of man is a denial of the incarnation of God's love for the world manifested in Christ. In other words, we can't just be distracted with, I just, I love God, I love God, I love God. No, a love for God means that we will love the people around us. Now, a natural question that we might ask, and it actually was asked in Jesus's life, is who is my neighbor? If we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, who is my neighbor? And I'll answer this in two ways. I want you to first recall the story that Jesus told of the good Samaritan. In that story, the Samaritan found a beaten and bullied and bleeding man on the roadway. Others had passed by this suffering man but the Samaritan cared for this man's needs, and Jesus said the Samaritan had treated this man like a neighbor, the, the Samaritan was a neighbor to this man. This story helps us see that our neighbor is further than we think. You know, the Samaritan had his own community, his own life, his own network, his own circle of people, and he was well outsided on this road but he was called to love this man who was far out of his circle. He extended himself beyond his group to care for an obvious need. But the story also helps us see that our neighbor is closer than we think. The Samaritan found a man in his path and helped him. He didn't have to go out of his way, but on his way, an opportunity arose. So we wanna be a people who love those that are far off, who love the nations for the glory of Jesus and for the expansion of the gospel. But we must also love those who are in our everyday path in life. It's easy to say, I love everybody. It's easy to say, I love the whole world. But list out 100 people that you know that live in this town and think about those 100 people. Many of them are probably difficult to love It gets a little harder the closer to home we get. But God has asked us to love not only him, but to love people. Now before we move on, I must point out the mistake of getting Jesus' command backwards. There's a reason it's God, then people. You know, some people think that the first commandment is loving people, but this can lead to really tragic consequences. For instance, without a love for God first, gospel preaching will just totally dry up because you've got to have mental and emotional fortitude and boldness to preach the gospel. It's an offensive message to so many. It's a stumbling block, Paul said. And so you have to love God first so that when the offense comes, you don't mind because the love for God is present within your heart and within your soul. You see, Jesus isn't telling us that our love for our neighbor means that we approve of everything, that we confront nothing, or that we preach to no one. He isn't telling us to figure out self-love first, then loving others second, then loving God third. No, he's telling us we have to love God before anyone, including ourselves. He knows that love for God will produce the healthiest kind of love For others, Again, this is where our society often gets it wrong. Many are trying to love humanity without a love for God. Now, of course, we'd expect to see this, like I said earlier, because we're made in God's image. So we would expect that God's image bearers reflect God's image at times in trying to love each other. So we should expect a level of care for others to arise from humanity in general. But it always runs askew. It doesn't know how to love in helpful ways. And it often harms people because it doesn't know how to love in the light of God and his word. But let's be a church that loves God by loving people. You know, when we have a respect of God and fear of God in our hearts, we've gotta reach out to our community. You know, foster kids need homes, teams need coaches, Young believers need mentors. Lonely people need living rooms to be in. Schools need helpers. Offices need people that are willing to sacrifice. Churches need volunteers. And people need the love of other people. They're just thirsty for it. They're dying for it. So let's ask God for the wisdom to, uh, by his spirit, lead us into pathways of being able to love the people around us. Let's close though with the final little paragraph, the response of the scribe in verse 32. It says, and the scribe said to him, you are right. Teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your, with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. (laughs) Now, in, in closing, here we see that Jesus heard the scribe's response. And he told the scribe that he was not far from the kingdom of God. And everybody else said, Man, we're not gonna question Jesus anymore. He's just shut down every objection. But when he said this to this scribe, you have to remember that Judaism at this moment with Jesus' coming, it was fading. The sacrificial system would be abolished when Jesus died on the cross. He would fulfill the sacrificial system. And eventually, after Jesus ascended, within a generation, Jerusalem and the temple inside of Jerusalem would be destroyed. It'd be impossible to go offer sacrifices in the temple anymore and so this man seems to have seen that to a degree you know loving God loving your neighbor it's more important than the whole sacrificial system he said you see the kingdom of God uh, in the kingdom of God love is the supreme element here's how it works in closing God loves us that's step one We see this clearly in the gospel and we repent of our sin and we receive his gift of grace. Then we respond to his love by loving him in return. We worship, we pray, we study scripture, we go to church gatherings, all as a way to love God. Then his love stirs within us to love the people around us. Led by the Spirit, we do sacrificial things that God asks for us in an attempt to love others. Then, waiting for us after we've loved others is the love of God again. As we drink of his endless supply of love, we become motivated to love God and others again. On and on, his love fuels us for this good life. So remember, The most important thing in life is to love God. And as I said, all of it is a response to his love for us. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.